This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In the 1950s and 60s, mental health providers used psychedelics to help patients open up about difficult memories. Then the drugs were banned. Now there's a resurgence. Psychedelics like MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine are being studied as solutions for anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Rachel Yehuda is director of the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. She says drugs like MDMA are especially useful in the context of healing from trauma. Psychedelics are tools. They're not treatments per se, but they're tools that help people see things that they might not otherwise see. And once those things are seen, they can be worked with. Today, a research renaissance for psychedelics. Is this the treatment of the future? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Trauma researcher Rachel Yehuda has worked with veterans and other victims of PTSD for three decades. She says psychedelics help people visit distressing memories and develop self-compassion. MDMA, also called ecstasy, increases insights and reduces fear, she says. In an assisted setting with psychotherapists, it can help patients do the hardest work of therapy. The Food and Drug Administration has designated MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as a breakthrough approach, so it's being evaluated in research for possible prescription use. This has caught the eye of the science community and many others. Yehuda sits down with Gita Vaid, a psychologist and psychoanalyst who researches ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Allison Snyder of Axios leads the conversation, which was held in June. Here's Snyder. Thank you both for being here. And I want to know, first off, what has happened that we are discussing psychedelics in research institutions like Mount Sinai, Johns Hopkins, uh, on Wall Street, at the Aspen Ideas Festival? What's going on in this field that has gotten to this point? I think that people have started to recognize that we need to look out of the box for solutions to the problems of mental health, especially mental health conditions that are related somehow to trauma exposure or the things that happen to us. And we do have treatments for trauma-related disorders like PTSD and depression or anxiety, but most people who go to therapy feel that they have to continue in therapy, that they're not, going, that they're not getting over a really important hurdle that is allowing them to kind of reclaim their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, or reach kind of ultimate healing and wellness. Um, The history of psychedelics is very well known. In the 50s and 60s, psychedelics were used by mental health providers to help open patients up so that they could discuss very intimate and difficult to talk about topics. Then these substances were banned. Mm -hmm. Um, They're Schedule I compounds now. And I think what you're seeing now is a resurgence uh, because 
a few really brave people decided that these tools were too important um, to keep scheduled and began an initiative to really test these compounds. And right now, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy has received breakthrough status by the FDA. And psilocybin, which you might know as magic mushrooms, has also received FDA breakthrough status for depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that is when academia takes notice. Mm -hmm. When the FDA gives breakthrough status to a treatment, it's very hard to dismiss it. And so the right thing to do is really try to get on board and figure out what's going on. So Gita, you've worked with, uh, you've worked on ketamine-assisted uh, psychotherapy for 20-odd years? No, I've been in private practice private for practice. 25 years, okay. working as a psychiatrist, a psychopharmacologist, and a psychoanalyst. It's only been in the last sort of seven, eight years that I came across psychedelics and was just completely blown away by the access and the healing potential. And that started me off on a journey of exploration to try and understand everything that was happening in the field, in the underground, in the overground, in research. Mm -hmm. And in the last few years, I've been working with a pioneer in the field, Phil Wolfson, working with ketamine, which is a legal medicine and a psychedelic agent, to, to really work with ketamine in my office and teach ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So, okay, I, I, maybe we should just start with what happens. You both work, you're talking about different, different drugs here, um, but maybe you could each describe what goes on for a patient who comes in, whether in a research setting, in a clinical setting, what, what does this look like? What's, who's in the room? Where, where is the room? What, go, what goes on? Uh, well, for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, what goes on is that the patient, um, the studies that have been done have been done in post-traumatic stress disorder patients. Um, the two therapists spend a lot of time getting to know the patient and preparing the patient to work with a psychedelic drug. This includes getting to know what their traumatic experiences were like and helping them really understand what it means to take a psychedelic and what that experience might be like for them. On the day that the psychedelic or the MDMA will be administered, there are again two therapists. The patient takes the MDMA and within an hour starts to feel the effects. The patient is offered another booster dose, and then the patient kind of settles in to an experience, there's music, there's eye shades, where they're revisiting moments from their past in the presence of two therapists that are really kind of holding space and following their process. Now, what does MDMA do to facilitate a psychotherapeutic process? MDMA, it's not a classic psychedelic, uh, but it's a drug that increases compassion, it increases insight, it reduces fear of confronting traumatic memories. And so it is setting up a completely conducive state towards doing the very hard work of therapy, which is visiting very distressing traumas. Most people who go to a mental health provider to talk about a traumatic experience get stuck somewhere along the way because it's so difficult to go forward. There's a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of self-blame. There's just a lot of really difficult material to get to. But if you're in a state where you're having a lot of self-compassion um, in the presence of people that are really making it safe for you to talk, then you can 
really visit things. And the psychologist Stan Graf really said it best and summarized it perfectly when he said that psychedelics are to the field of psychiatry what the microscope is to biology and the telescope is to astronomy. Psychedelics are tools. They're not treatments per se, but they're tools that help people see things that they might not otherwise see. And once those things are seen, they can be worked with, especially in the context of healing from trauma. Traumatic memories can be processed. At the end of eight hours, a person has done a lot of processing of trauma. The drug wears off and is completely out of one's system. And the next day, the therapists work with the patient to integrate and talk about what insights were made and what was seen mm -hmm. um, during the journey. And there are several in, uh, integration sessions that can then be followed again by another experimental session, more integration sessions, <coughs> etc. So it's not a quick fix. It's not that you just take a medicine and everything is fine. But you're taking a medicine in the context of a process of healing, and you're working very hard to heal um, in the presence of trained clinicians and in the exact right setting that, and framework that is conducive to the healing. So therapy is the, the, the other piece of this that sometimes I think is brushed over maybe in headlines. And so from your perspective, Gita, what, um, what needs to happen from the therapy? Uh, how's, it, how's it done now in terms of how therapy approaches this? And then what are the new modes or new approaches to therapy that are needed given this potentially new tool? Well, I think there's not been enough of a focus on the psychotherapy that goes along with these medicines to really enhance the healing process. Psychedelics, I think, actually offer a whole different approach in mental health and healing, and we need to develop different approaches and have better practices and delivery systems because they can be used as novel antidepressants and anxiolytics in a very different process. But I think the more radical and the further reaching is it allows for a much different process of deeper healing. But that involves a lot of skill in knowing each medicine and using the therapeutic relationship to cultivate knowledge for a person to prepare to go into an experience, as well as the after effects to absorb and process. So it's a very different approach. As a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, I would say everything in my past and background was relevant and, and applicable. It's just the rules all shifted. And it's just a very accelerated and different process, but it gets be beyond the trauma. It actually gets into a process of building health and building well-being. So that's a very different function and corrective experience. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the risks? Because you, you're mentioning to me beforehand that you also see people who have had hallucinogenic experiences and have had bad experiences, right? So how, what are the risks of this type of, of therapy? Well I, well, I think a lot of it has to do with preparation and patient selection. First of all, when I see a person in my office, and I don't work in research, so I can do a much more tailored approach based on the individual. First of all, you have to find out is this person suitable? And I would say most people are suitable for this approach. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be with psychedelics. There are other practices which involve non-ordinary states, such as meditation or even breath work or somatic work that can get one into some of the healing potential that this approach offers. Psychedelics are a very good approach, but are not 
actually useful for everyone. So you have to look for exclusions. There are certain people who might have medical problems or psychological problems that make them either high risk and require a lot of preparation, or perhaps it's not the ideal treatment. And then in addition to that, I think that a lot of people who've had bad experiences or bad journeys or have run into problems have really had not adequate preparation or sophisticated facilitators who are dosing them correctly or giving them the adequate guidance of knowing how to navigate the experience and make meaning of the experience. So it's a different set of skill sets that really needs to be explored and, and researched as well as um, you know, disseminated into current um, practitioners. So given where, what you've described, which is a very controlled environment, um, a lot of still open questions, which we can talk a little bit more about, but what are the most promising things that you're seeing in the research in, in, clini in the clinical setting? Like, where do you see, you described a little bit with MDMA, but where, what's the range of what you're seeing and why, like, why are you so excited about it? Why am I so excited yeah. about it? Well, I'm excited for a lot of reasons. One is the hope that it offers so many people uh, who have been really struggling with deep traumas and haven't really found a way to um, access good health and healing. So I'm excited for them. I'm also excited about what we might learn about the brain as a result of the fact that these medicines accomplish what they accomplish. So if you stick with the metaphor of the microscope and the telescope, I'm very fascinated by how psychedelics might work in the brain. Do psychedelics enhance cortical plasticity? Do psychedelics release oxytocin? Is that why we feel um, so affiliative when, when these drugs are given? Um, what are the mechanisms that really are involved in um, healing? I think that these medicines can tell us a lot about the neural basis of consciousness. I think these medicines can tell us a lot of things that we don't know about really um, how psychotherapy can be optimized and why maybe taking a medicine alone might not achieve the perfect optimization um, in the context of a trauma-related psychiatric disorder. So we're here, here we are at the threshold of a new paradigm for healing, certainly in the context of trauma-related disorders. So a lot of people stand to benefit, and we stand to learn a lot of things that have really been elusive to us without the proper way to understand them. I'm particularly excited also about looking at the question of why such a brief, relatively brief uh, course of therapy can be so transformative. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to be invoking a lot of, we're going to be invoking epigenetic mechanisms to help us explain this issue. And in a way, there's a real parallel here between understanding the question of why a traumatic event has so much deep impact um, on one's life, an event that could have taken just a few minutes or a few hours can end up really being a watershed and really guiding the rest of the person through symptoms through a, a different world perspective um, guide the decisions that they make from then on. How can such a short event have such a big impact? Well, we now know that a lot of the um, biologic basis of trauma that is related to PTSD involves epigenetic mechanisms 
meaning changes that occur, the ch changes that occur on the DNA that change the way genes function, and they promote enduring transformational changes in people. And it might be that the solution is to have a counter environmental experience that is just as powerful, an experience that involves kind of altering one's state of consciousness and being able to go very deep into exploring uh, the meaning of traumatic events and how they can best really be interpreted and integrated in a person. When you say sustained, I mean, there's evidence, I think it's with psilocybin, that someone, it'll have an effect six months, right, um, after the, 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 the intervention or the, the treatment, rather. Um, you know, six months later, and you, you alluded to this idea of the brain being rewired. Um, do, we, do we understand why that is? What's going on there from a plasticity standpoint? Like, what's happening we don't completely understand it, but we have enough facts to know that there's a there there. Mm -hmm. And what's very exciting is the opportunity to really stretch ourselves and use the science that we have spent decades developing towards understanding this task. And you asked why academic medical centers are so excited. Uh, we're at the threshold now of being able to use very sophisticated techniques, computational neuroscience, um, techniques that have been developed to really allow us to look at things that we haven't been able to look at. And I think that these medicines really will help us understand um, these very important questions. So yes, I think the brain can be rewired. I think that we have shown that even successful psychotherapy can rewire the brain in some ways. Um, so I think that this is going to be a very, very exciting thing to look at, whether the kind of changes that occur in the context of a successful psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy are similar to the kind of changes that occur when recovery is achieved without the use of a psychedelic. So these are going to be very interesting questions. And I'm um, very excited about what I'm seeing in my office because as a clinician, I've just been amazed at the results that I have achieved with individuals in private practice. It's just a complete game changer. And it's such a different process than what we're used to with psychotherapy. Some of it is um, tapping into, I would say, the innate intelligence that the body and the mind have towards healing. In medicine, we like to think that we heal people. But actually, as physicians, mostly we remove obstacles towards healing. And psychedelics really tap into the innate potential for healing. And there's just tremendous creativity that one sees in the healing process. It's very much like the creativity that we see in dreams and dream work. But that happens in the course of a session. I'd like to give you an example because it might, for individuals, give you a texture of what we're looking at. I was working, and this is in two sessions. I met with the woman and very quickly moved to doing a ketamine-assisted session with her. A young woman who was a student at college who'd had two rape experiences. And during the course of the session itself, she was in just a joyful state and saw her life as a fabric. And she noticed a stain on the fabric, which was the rape events, and was noticing to herself, why does that wind up being the center of gravity of her life? when there's so many other stitches in her fabric that encompass the life story and life experience she had. And after that experience, she had a very different sustained perspective on her, on her identity 
and her life story and her perspective. I've continued to work with her, but that one session, I think, gives you a taste of how different that is. Obviously, she'd been in tremendous therapy before that moment, but that was very different than anything she had achieved up until that moment in terms of her own healing. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments. It withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. So how accessible might this be to people? Because what you're describing, again, very controlled, um, potentially some risks. Like how, how accessible and how, how widespread could it be used? Well, we need a lot more knowledge in the field. I mean, I just completed academy-assisted psychotherapy training where a lot of physicians and psychotherapists were taught in a very intense container this whole process. But we do need a lot more teaching and training and knowledge and research in academic institutions, but also clinical research. I think there's a dearth of clinical studies to look at the art form of the work, work, which is just as important, and the psychotherapy systems. So it's not accessible, but there's a lot of interest and a lot of concern about who gets treatment and how can we make it affordable. Some of that involves really showing that this method works and also changing the systems to allow for coverage for people and access to this novel approach. Part of the access question, or the, the widespread use question, which we were also talking about, there's a debate about whether the trip is actually key to the, to the effect, right? Um, can you have a non-hallucinogenic or altered state experience and still uh, have benefit? There's some people who look at MDMA, right, which does, I think you mentioned it's not a classic psychedelic in the sense that it doesn't cause uh, hallucinogens, and that, you know, people still have a benefit from that. And then other people say it's um, potentially the key. Um, so I'm curious what you both think. Well, I think that it's an empirical question. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to do the research to answer that question. Um, and I'm all for that. I think that for a lot of people, they're, a lot, they're, they're scared of the hallucinogenic component. They're scared of what's been described as ego dissolution. Mm -hmm. And if there were a compound that could give similar effects and similar benefits without the trip without the, the uh, altered state of consciousness, I think people would opt in. Um, then again, many people that have had this 
trip or this altered state of consciousness rank it among the top 10 experiences in their right. lives. Right. Uh, you wouldn't want to miss that, would you? <laughs> so I think we'll just have to see. You feel gypped. <laughs> I think you might feel gypped if you... Well, I think it depends on the clinical application, though. I mean, right. of course, I value the experience itself. I think, for me, it's a very important experience that adds to the process. Although I do think these medicines, even ketamine, which can be used as an antidepressant and dosed, and the delivery, because it can be delivered in many different ways, intravenously, intranasally, orally, intramuscularly, you can, you can dose it so that you don't have to experience the psychedelic properties and still afford very good mm -hmm. clinical results in terms of depression coverage and anxiety coverage. But I think that gets into different approaches and different applications. As a psychotherapist, I really value the process and the field, and I think it's the ideal field to, to discover and tap into the healing intelligence within the mind and in the body, but also in the relationship. So it depends on the different approaches. I think there's different applications. Um, I want to take a couple of questions from the audience. If you have a question, um, raise your hand. The uh, process that you just described sounds very similar to EMDR, and as a practical matter, how do you decide whether to go with EMDR versus a hallucinogen solution? And I, I'm sure there are many nuances of, of the differences, but I'm just curious as a layperson, um, because the explosion of very anxious teenagers and young adults in this country today, perhaps we could help some of them understand that there are solutions to how they're feeling. I think this is the perfect time to make the point that psychedelic medicines are not yet legal. Mm -hmm. So well, if you go to... Is, ketamine is legal. Except for ketamine. Ketamine, yes, ketamine But um, MDMA and psilocybin, they're not yet FDA approved for use. Ketamine is legal. Um, so I think you wouldn't go to your therapist and just say, or your therapist wouldn't wonder which one to use. Right now, the way that you get a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with MDMA or psilocybin or any other um, medicine that is currently scheduled is to do so in the context of an FDA-approved research. And they're, you know, they're usually very tight um, criteria for who could join those studies. Um, one day, when these medicines are approved, and I hope that day will be soon, it will be a very important question of how you decide when in the course of a therapy to use a psychedelic medicine. Do you do it after other more traditional forms have failed? Or do you start right out of the gate with something very powerful? Um, will there be the need to do combination therapies? Will there be need to support a patient who's done psychedelic work with other kinds of work? Would you look at it as opening up someone so that they can do uh, trauma-focused work with more traditional approaches. These are all things that we don't know yet, and these are all things that we're going to have to find out. The last time there was a sort of broad-based psychedelic renaissance in the 60s, it seemed like one of the consequences of that was a increasingly vocal desire for social and political change, um, influenced both by people who were experimenting with these medicines and the people that they were around. So kind of running the clock forward, assuming that MDMA and other psychedelic medicines get approved and start to play a wider role in society, 
it seems like you can almost anticipate at least some form of an eventual backlash against these medicines. And how does the psychedelic assisted therapy community today think about mitigating that potential backlash? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Well, I think, I think it does have a direct effect on people's consciousness and awareness. So I do think we can anticipate it making big shifts, but I think that's very uplifting and promising because people I work with who are in pain and suffering, it's almost like someone who's drowning. And when you're drowning, all you can think about is getting your head above water and yourself. And what is very, um, I think, very heartening about this work, particularly as a psychiatrist, is to see people who are in so much pain and when they have their own healing, their first impulse, without any prompting, is to be very grateful and then have more space to look beyond themselves, to look to their neighbors and to other people. And it's not infrequent. In fact, I would say it's quite typical, and I think it's in fact the human condition, that when one is um, safe and not drowning, but on dry land and able to to survive comfortably, to look around and help others. And so I hope that some of the impact will not just be negative, it'll be a, a positive virtuous, virtuous cycle of helping and supporting and societal change. I, I do worry about the backlash in terms of how fast this movement is happening and how you know, there's a real interest in moving very quickly. And sometimes when that happens, as I think is happening, you're taking shortcuts in terms of a lot of the necessary platforms, research delivery systems being adequate. And that could inadvertently lead to black backlash if there are problems or, or side effects that haven't been adequately studied and adequate attention to how to manage those, those in, the, in the rollout. Mm -hmm. I would just want to add to that. I think that's the question. Uh, how are we going to avoid what happened last time? And I think what, we're going to do things differently this time. First of all, we're going to prepare for adverse events when people misuse these medicines or take them on their own or take them not as prescribed. So we have to develop harm reduction settings. We have to teach people what to do when somebody is in what we call a bad trip that really isn't a bad trip if you know how to help somebody through it. You can get a lot out of what happened when it wasn't so as much fun as you thought it would be. Um, but we have to train a new group of mental health providers in how to work with people in an altered state of consciousness, and we have to educate the public. And particularly if there are efforts to make these um, medicines more broadly available, we are going to have to talk about some of the downsides, some of the adverse events that occur, and what somebody should do when those things occur. Look, we know that any medicine that we take, any medicine that is in our medicine cabinet can be taken inappropriately and have adverse effects if we do so. So we just have to engage in real public education and public dialogue about this. Um, and we do need to have real places where people can call, hotlines, um, where people can talk about what's going on with them if they do find themselves in a situation that they didn't plan on. And so I think that that's going to be a really important part of rolling out these um, treatments to do so responsibly, to train people so that they understand and so that they don't get very afraid when there is an adverse event 
just like we don't ban aspirin because somebody swallows a bottle in the context of a suicide attempt. We just provide the public education that is necessary so that we can all understand that when used appropriately, these medicines can be not only safe, but offer the potential for some positive change. Um, we're just about out of time, so I want to thank you. Obviously, there's uh, a lot to watch. Um, as Abby says, you said, it's moving very quickly, um, a lot going on. So thank you for getting us up to speed, and um, thank you again for being here. Gita Vaid is the co-founder of the Center for Natural Intelligence, a laboratory dedicated to psychedelic psychotherapy innovation and clinical practice. Rachel Yehuda is a psychiatry and neuroscience professor at the Icon School of Medicine. She's vice chair for Veteran Affairs and director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division at the school. Allison Snyder is a managing editor at Axios, where she oversees coverage of science, space, and transportation. Their conversation was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by the Aspen Ideas Festival team. Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenen, Jonathan Melgard, Azalea Milan, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.